Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is uh, explorer, art collector, publisher, and author Erling Kaga. He's the first person to have completed on foot the Three Poles Challenge, the North Pole, the South Pole, and the summit of Mount Everest. He's written six books on exploration, philosophy, and art collecting. He runs uh, Kaga Forlag, a publishing company based in Oslo, where he uh, lives. We're going to talk about a couple of his books. The latest is Walking One Step at a Time. Another is Silence in the Age of Noise. In that book, Mr. Kaga shows us why silence is essential to our sanity and happiness, how it can open doors to wonder and uh, gratitude. Erling Kaga joins us uh, from uh, his home, I guess. is Are you in Oslo, Mr. Kaga? Yes, yes. We appreciate you uh, joining good us. Good morning. Yeah, good afternoon uh, where you are, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start, before we jump into your books, uh, fascinating books, uh, wonderful. Uh, you have uh, completed the uh, three-pole uh, challenge, uh, North Pole, South Pole, and Summit of Mount Everest. We're hearing reports uh, this year of um, uh, higher-than-usual uh, number of deaths on Mount Everest. Um, I wonder what your perspective is. Uh, on that. It's just extremely crowded up there, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, first of all, you feel a bit sadness because uh, so far 11 people uh, have died. Um, but also, you know, having seen that photo of uh, the last part up to the summit, where it's a long line, long queue to get to the summit, it's, it's also sad because uh, that's not how it should be on the mountain. But uh, yeah, so you know, it's it's not a, it's not a great time for mountaineering, that's for sure. Yeah, what uh, tell us about your experience up there? Um, what what did you experience? I did this uh, twenty five years ago, summit at Everest, and then it was much less people. Um, so you know, it was easier because we were maybe thirty or forty permits uh, that year. But uh, this year, I think it's almost four hundred. So it was much much less crowded, and, uh, and you know, which you know was uh, very nice for me because it made it easier to get to the summit. So, uh, but you know, we humans, we are kind of born explorers. So you know, it's kind of something deep inside us that we like, you know, to summit the highest mountain in the world. So that that challenge will remain, and people will keep on doing it. That impulse seems to be very strong in you, obviously. Uh, what, t- tell us about <laughs> yeah. that, what your impulse to, you write in your book, Silence, um, whenever I'm unable to walk, climb, or sail away from the world, I've learned to shut it out. So that impulse to walk, climb, or sail away from the world. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, as you mentioned, that I once walked alone to the South Pole and for 50 days and nights under the midnight sun. And that great, taught me a great lesson on, um, on, uh, on silence because I didn't have, didn't have any radio contact. And when I started out, I felt kind of everything was white and everything was flat all the way out to the horizon. But as, it, as the days and weeks passed by, I started to see all these variations in the snow that it was not, you know, it had a bit bluish, yellowish, greenish appearing. And it wasn't totally white either. And, I started to communicate with the environment, like sending some ideas out and getting some other thoughts back again because the silence can speak to you. And eventually I was wondering if Antarctica was changing, but of course it was me who was changing and kind of getting more and more a part of nature. And that again, you know, taught me how important silence can be and that actually we all need silence. Mm. I read that you, uh, the, the, company that transported you to this part of Antarctica required that you have a radio, but you took the batteries out. Yeah, <laughs> that was not so nice uh, to the company, maybe, but uh, my goal was to walk in total solitude to the South Pole to um, to, to experience uh, this total silence. And when the airplane company forced me to bring a radio, I took the radio, but I left the batteries in the trash bin on the airplane. So when I started out, I had a radio, uh, but no way to use it. In your book, this is the beginning of the book, you said, only when I understood that I had a primal need for silence was I be able, able to begin my search for it. A primal need for silence. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think, you know, all we humans, we have a need for silence. Uh, 
and uh, and you know it's it's uh, but it has and I think they always had a hard time dealing with silence. Like for humans to be uh, in a silent room for a longer time is you know kind of feels complicated. And of course today when we have so many temptations in, in, uh, with the smartphones and different devices, we're always searching for noise. And um, I think, you know, once in a while we need silence, we need silence to relax, we need silence to um, discover ourselves, and we need silence to uh, develop our, our minds. So if you always go for, for noise, um, life feels shorter and life feels much poorer. Hmm. In today's world, uh, you know, if you're not going to Antarctica, if you're in the city, ca- can you find silence? Yes. Um, I think, you know, somehow, of course, if you're in a business city in Utah or in Norway, uh, you can't wait for the silence to come to you. So you actually have to search for your own silence, kind of invent your own silence, find your own silence, and, uh, and to shut out the world. And I, I'm doing that myself by walking a lot. And uh, I walked the stairs, I tried to walk to the metro, um, and the silence I'm searching for is the silence which is within, because, you know, in a city it will be so much sounds around you, but still you have this silence within, which I think it's very important to, 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 to listen to, because that silence speaks to you, and you should be aware of that. You quote uh, the philosopher Pascal, um, inward exploration uh, can be, uh, it, it makes people nervous, makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because this French philosopher, Pascal, wrote in the 1640s that all humanity's problems stems from one single thing, and that's our inability to sit in a room alone doing nothing. And instead of doing nothing, we try. We start to do something, and that's the beginning of all of the problems. And I think that's you know that's a very interesting point, and it was sure relevant 350 years ago, but it's or 370 years ago, but it's still you know more relevant today. So this we talked about you. You took the batteries out of the radio. You definitely wanted that solitude. What about in you know? I don't think you're a luddite, are you? In in your regular life, you use technology, but how do you how do you get away from that to, to find that silence? You know, I, as I said, I think it's important to use technology. I think, you know, it's many advantages with technology, but sometimes you need to have a break because uh, all those apps, of course, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Snap, etc., were, you know, originally made to, to make people happy and make people, you know, get in touch with, with each other. But today we see that it, uh, we have an increasing level of sadness, uh, loneliness, and also with the depressions. So I think this is part of due to overuse of technology. So sometimes you need a break. And I think that's quite also easy to do. Like, you know, when I'm here in Oslo, I see people, when you walk the streets, you're always holding a telephone in your hand, and, and you're checking the news maybe three times in an hour, although, you know, nothing has happened. And that's a habit we actually have to get rid of because, uh, because it makes our lives you know, much more complicated. You also, you quote Pascal, you also, many philosophers in this book, you also quote uh, the writer David Foster Wallace. Uh, I want to read this. He says, Bliss, a second-by-second joy and gratitude at the gift of being alive, conscious, lies on the other side of crushing, crushing boredom. He says, pay close attention to the most tedious thing you can find, tax returns, televised golf, <laughs> and in waves, <laughs> uh, boredom like you've never known will wash over you and just about kill you. But he's, he's suggesting that we actually do seek this out. <laughs> I like that quote very much. Um, uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I complained to my mother that I was bored. And, uh, of course, I was bored because nothing was happening, and I didn't have anyone to play with. Uh, my mother said to me every time, Arling, it's, uh, it's healthy to be bored every now and then. Um, I didn't understand what she meant, but today I do. And, uh, and uh, I think, you know, sometimes we need to accept that we can't, or, or we can't be satisfied at all times. 
but sometimes life is a little bit boring and it should be a little bit boring. I think, you know, I think my mother was right. Do you, did you find that in your kids as well? They're, uh, uh, that's, that's a difficult one because, you know, it's, I think my kids, as many people to do today, they still feel boredom. But while, you know, Oregon race, we were bored because we didn't have anything to do. I think you now no, people are bored of the opposite reason, because it's too many options, it's too many things to do, too many apps, too many TV series, too much going on. So it's kind of an overflow of things to do. And that makes people bored. This kind of paradox of choice makes people bored. David Foster Wallace said we should get to a state that he called unborable. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a very interesting idea. Um, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, he eventually he committed suicide, and they, it is claimed that he actually committed suicide out of boredom. Yeah, that's... So that's also kind of a sad story, but I think, yeah. you know, he was an unbelievable good writer. What does, that, what does that say about his philosophy, do you think, that he did commit suicide? You know, I think that's hard to say I didn't know him. I only know him as an author. And, you know, that kind of choices or that kind of actions always have, you know, so many, you know, such a complicated background. So I think it's hard to, hard to, hard to, to, to speculate too much. In mm. Yeah, it's, it's probably true. There are a lot of complicating factors. Um, I wonder, before we go to break, I want to, I, I want to ask you that you, you asked three profound questions in the book. What is silence? Where can it be found? And why is it now more important uh, than ever? Uh, we've been talking, hitting a little bit on those. I want to dive into those. Uh, I was fascinated, many examples in the book. Um, you talk about a performance artist named Marina Abramovich. Um, who, yeah. who, uh, <laughs> she did a piece in the, uh, Museum of Modern Art, where I guess she just sat and, and stared at the audience. Yeah, it's, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was for, you know, not only for days, but for weeks, sitting there facing people in, uh, coping and going in, 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 in silence. And uh, I think, you know, what's interesting about, you know, Marina Bromovich is this, uh, um, this uh, uh, story she tells about uh, searching for silence. She was dreaming about visiting a des- desert, sitting in the, in the middle of the des- desert with no sounds around her, and then experience a total silence. But what happened was, was that she eventually got to the desert. It was quiet. She sat down. But then she had all this noise in her head, and she was thinking too much. And, you know, if you're thinking, thinking about the past, you're thinking about the future. Um, so she didn't find silence right away, but slowly all those thoughts uh, disappeared, and she started to experience the environment and experience the silence, and then, you know, then she, you know, then, then, then she became content. Uh, that must have been quite the experience. And, and you write that she uh, reported that after a long time, she could distinguish sounds outside the building with more and more precision. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. But, you know, the interesting thing, like, you know, this experience in uh, this performance piece at the Museum of Art in New York, as she said that, you know, when she started out, uh, she only heard the noise from the people walking back and forth to see her into the eyes. But eventually she started to hear more and more and that's the interesting thing with with silence that it kind of you know it makes us so much more aware of what's going on and so much more aware of what you kind of also going on uh, inside your head so eventually she start she started to hear the noises out on the street and i find that that's very very interesting because i think in the noise when you live in noise somehow you hardly hear anything and I think she reported that this experience was it was a positive experience for her, uh, but she said she was unsettled when she went to the desert. Yeah, exactly, because, uh, because you know, it's not enough to have silence around you. You need, actually need to calm down, and I think that's a big struggle we have in today's world because, you know, we always want to be available. We always want to be connected. And that, again, is a kind of noise. And, you know, all these distractions, they're kind of noise. So uh, it's not enough to get to a totally quiet place. You actually also have to, you know, find peace within yourself. 
And I think that peace you know, and that silence is the most, most important of them all. Young people, it's, it's reported the uh, young people today have a fear of being left out, right? They always want to be connected because they feel like their friends will be doing something and they'll be, they'll be left out. Um, so harder maybe for them to disconnect? Yeah, but, you know, I think this fear of missing out is FOMO. I think, you know, that's not only young people. I think that's kind of, you know, that's that's almost all generations now, that kind of fear of missing out, and they would like to be available. And, you know, an average Norwegian NAH will watch the phone, the screen on the phone for four hours every day, and they will probably touch the phone 2,600 times every day. And... Morally, it's nothing wrong with it, but you know, it's a matter about wasting your life. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good point. I, I, I've never made a study of how much I look at my phone or touch my phone. Uh, I imagine I would be distressed to learn how much. <laughs> yeah. I do. You know, the interesting is if you spend four hours every day on your phone, you live for eight years. That's about thirty thousand days. So that's again. 120,000 hours of your lifetime, you know, watching, what or looking down into, onto your phone. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's lots of waste of time. By the way, you, you talked to uh, uh, this performance artist, Abramovich, and, uh, yeah. and and this is for the, I guess, the, the English uh, version of the book, because because the, the yeah. version Norway had come out. You, this was interesting. So the best way to describe silence would be to put a blank sheet of A4 paper in a Xerox machine, then hold the original and the copy next to each other. She says that is silence. <laughs> but, you know, she's an artist. I'm not. But I think it's, uh, I think it's very, you know, I think, it's, I think it's well said because, you know, somehow in one way, uh, silence is uh, is is uh, is white. It's hardly anything. Or kind of, you know, as my kids said, uh, silence is nothing, and nothing comes from nothing. But you know, it's also partly wrong because silence is not nothing. It silence is uh, is is at least something. Well, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, more with Erling Kaga. He is an explorer, uh, author, publisher. Uh, he is uh, the first person to complete on foot the uh, the Three Poles Challenge, the North Pole, South Pole, and the Summit of Everest. And his books include Silence in the Age of Noise. We're talking about that. We'll get into talking about Walking One Step at a Time. That's the latest book from Erling Kaga. We've reached him in Oslo, uh, Norway, and more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Over the Memorial Day weekend, Tyler Riggs and David Fawcett came into the UPR studio to talk, to listen, and hopefully to bridge the current cultural and political divide. Both heartily recommended one small step we can all take. We need to learn, I think, as a society to just get along better. Invite your neighbors over to a barbecue that have completely different beliefs than you. We've got to start having the barbecues. I need to reach out to people in starting in the neighborhood that I don't talk to and get to know them. And you don't have to become best friends, but you should find some element of common ground. If you'd like to participate, go to upr.org and sign up for StoryCorps' One Small Step. I'm Tom Williams. With our One Small Step project, we're recording meaningful, respectful conversations between people who hold different political and cultural beliefs. We're seeking participants to join us. You can find out more by going to our website, upr.org. Click on One Small Step. UPR News Director Danny Hayes and I will be in Blanding and Moab this week. and We'd love to have you come and learn more about One Small Step at a breakfast reception event, 7 to 9 a.m. on Friday in Moab at the USU Moab campus. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Erling Kaga. He is the first person to have completed on foot the Three Poles Challenge, North Pole, South Pole, and Summit of Mount Everest. He's author of several books, and uh, we'll get into talking a little bit uh, about his latest book, Walking, One Step at a Time. We're talking about uh, his book, Silence in the Age of Noise, right now. 
And uh, in the book, he answers, or at least explores the questions, what is silence, where can it be found, and why is it now more important uh, than, than ever? Uh, I'd, I'd like to address those questions uh, to you, maybe just to talk about them briefly. So what is silence? What is your answer to that? Uh, you know, um, it, I, uh, uh, you know, in what ways it's kind of the opposite of sounds, but to me, it's much more. So I think about silence as the opposite to noise. And I think about noise, I'm thinking about all the distractions we have in our daily lives from our smartphones, from our different devices, and all the distractions, and of course, also all the different sounds. All this together, that's noise to me. And, uh, and then, again, silence is the opposite of all this. Mm. Um, before I ask the next question, I want to uh, ask you again about your experiences. You, you write about the, the one in Antarctica, um, and it's, it's just you out there, right? And so it's... Yeah, it's you, you yourself and you, <laughs> uh, but but uh, the, you know there is there's a whole vast world out there that the white uh, turns into you know it's not just a uh, white, but I wonder about I mean you you feel the blood circulating in your body imagine right? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, somehow uh, um, you know I was expecting to find total silence in Antarctica. Um, but to my surprise, uh, total silence does probably not exist because even in Antarctica, when it was you know no one speaking, no no sounds for any, from absolutely anything, I could still hear my heart beating. I could hear kind of my blood circulating, and uh, even if if I hold my breath. It sounds like we have uh, lost Mr. Kaga. Let's uh, let's uh, go to promotional announcements. We'll uh, we'll get him back on the uh, on the phone. Erling Kaga, author of Silence in the Age of Noise and Walking One Step at a Time, Norwegian explorer. We've reached him in uh, in Norway. Let's uh, let's go to a break and uh, come back. You're listening to All Things Considered. Actually, Access Utah here on Utah Public Radio, and we'll be back with our guest coming up, uh, Tom Williams, later in the program. Stay with us. All through the spring and summer, Elwood failed to scamper. He suffered no injury. Cowards! He would snarl at his brothers, yellow bellies, jellyfish. A fearless rabbit this week on Selected Shorts from PRI Public Radio International. Sunday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Weird Al Yankovic is on the show. He tells you how he's gone from touring with just an accordion to playing with a full orchestra, how he's had a longer career than some of the artists he's parodied, and why he goes through extreme lengths to make sure the artist is okay with him spoofing their song. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us today at 1 o'clock for Q on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us. We uh, got disconnected there. We apologize for that, uh, Mr. Kaga. Erling Kaga, author of Silence in the Age of Noise and Walking One Step at a Time. Uh, you were talking about your experience out in Antarctica when we uh, disconnected. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it was interesting to see that uh, although everything was uh, quiet around me, I still had all these sounds inside me. I kind of hear, hear the, uh, the heart was beating. And my blood circulating, but I, you know, I could still find the silence within. So I think that's the most important silence we have, and that's something I also kind of discovered walking to the South Pole: the importance of being in touch with the silence within. 
What do you find in that silence within? A lot of people get nervous. <laughs> Some people find terror in that silence within. You you find very positive emotions. Yeah, but, you know, sometimes even I can find terror, that I can find uh, silence to be very uncomfortable. But the, when I want to write a book, I want to write about this kind of positive emotions you get off of silence. And um, I think, you know, to me, first of all, in the silence, I meet myself. And, of course, if you are religious, deeply religious, you you know, you'll find God. Because, uh, for instance, in the Bible, God doesn't come in a heavy storm or uh, uh, with lots of noise. Uh, God, God appears eventually when it becomes absolutely quiet. And you can find the same in different religions. So I think, you know, but to me, uh, that to me, uh, it is about getting to know myself uh, better. And of course, that can be uncomfortable. It can be a little struggle, uh, but it's definitely worth it. Mm. We've talked a bit about this. I wonder if you could expand on this. Your third question, why is it silence now more important than ever? I think it's more important today than ever because there's so much more noise. So I think it has always been important in uh, uh, for, for every human. But today, it's so much noise. So when I, you know, when I, I have three, three teenage daughters, so eventually I understood they didn't know, even know what silence is because their life is all about noise. And because they had so much noise, uh, you know, my life also become kind of all about noise. And that was one of the reasons I sat down to write a book because, you know, I want my kids to, to you know, slowly start, start to understand that noise is okay, but not all the time, but sometimes you need to search for your own silence. Um, and the, the second question, where can silence be found? I mean, you're saying that silence can, can be found, I guess, at anywhere. Yeah, I think, I think it can be found uh, anywhere. And, you know, if you don't find it, you someone had to invent it yourself. I think it's, you know, to a great degree, uh, a matter about, uh, about, matter about uh, attitude. And, you know, I'm 56 years old now, so I'm starting to go to all the 60s, 70s, and 80th birthdays. And what people talk about in all those birthdays, you know, one theme that is, you know, uh, you know uh, is there all the time is life is short. Everybody complains that life is short. But the thing is, uh, life is long. Life is not short at all. But if you do the same things every day, for instance, living through your telephone, Life will feel short, but that's a huge misunderstanding. I want to, before we leave uh, silence, talk about walking with some related themes here. Um, I want to talk about uh, urban exploration. You went out with a friend, an urban explorer. I didn't know there were such uh, people in in New York City. (laughs) Certainly, certainly. uh, Yeah, I went out to this urban explorer, historian called Steve Duncan, um, an American. And we went to Northern Bronx, um, way up north on Broadway, went and went to cross New York City through its train, subway, water, and sewage tunnels. And we kept on for five days, sleeping on the ground. And, uh, and from Bronx, we went through the sewage on Bronx, down to Harlem, and crisscrossed the whole city. And just to see New York City from the inside out, and what the city would look like if you turned it upside down. Uh, yeah, so you went up up over the bridge, uh, on the top of the bridge, to be clear. Yeah, you had to do it at to night, the because the police wouldn't let you. Had to do you. it at night. Yeah. yeah. Because it's so much, I don't know about Utah, but at least in New York, it's so much police. At least it feels like it when you are afraid of it. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, it's not a big crime, but obviously you... Nobody's going to give you permission to, to 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 jump into manholes in the street to get into the sewage or climb the bridge. So you have to do it while it's dark. That's for sure. You told of an experience. It is wonderful up there at that, that height to see the the sunrise coming. Exactly. So it's, I think you know I was standing on top of Williamsburg Bridge, looking into uh, Brooklyn and Queens, seeing the sun rising uh, over the horizon. And, you know, then you just feel this great, have this great feeling of, um, 
of gratefulness. Um, I think that's a very important feeling because I think that's kind of, you know, it's so easy not to be grateful. But I think, you know, everybody, when they wake up and they see the sun is rising, you should you should feel gratefulness. Mm. Now, I can understand that. Then you went uh, into the sewers. And uh, I don't know if, yeah. if gratitude is what you felt there, but tell us about that. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, to be, uh, it's to be, no, I didn't feel any gratitude in the sewage. Okay, sure. all right. Um, 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 it's in, in, in Bronx, the sewage tunnels are quite wide and high, but while down in Soho, uh, they were much more narrow. Uh, you know, it probably sounds more crazy on the radar than it, than it, than it was. But, you know, we, Steve and I eventually end up crawling through the switch of, 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 of Soho. And if you would li- like to hear, you know, kind of a dirty fun fact, you know, somehow the people in Soho use much more toilet paper than the people in Bronx. That's an interesting sociological study that you can, you can see underneath the, <laughs> the city. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, people in Seoul have much more money. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I, the, the simple fact. But you can hear, if you're down there enough, you distinguish sounds. It seems to be a running pattern. You can distinguish sounds differently. Yeah, you can. And, 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 and of course, New York City is very much about making money. And to make money makes lots of noise. So uh, it's very hard in New York to find any... Uh, quiet places and silent places, but still, again, uh, you know, you need to invent it, and you need, you know, probably need to find it within uh, inside uh, yourself. And even in way into the tunnels, uh, you could still hear the sounds from a truck maybe hitting, passing over a manhole, or the, the subway passing, and then the nearby tunnel. So it's always it's always noise in in in, in New York. You know, as I say in the song, it never sleeps. Uh, I can't leave the book without uh, treating this. This was very interesting to me. Uh, you said that you have uh, learned a, one poem by heart, or at least a poem by heart, a haiku. Uh, yeah. This, this putting you on the spot. Do you remember it? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, it's, I, I remember it. It's a, it's a kind of uh, a frog uh Jumps into a dam. The sound uh, uh, of water. The sound Was of that water. Almost it. Yes, uh, an old pond. A frog jumps in. The sound of water. Yes. Yeah, I was not very impressive, but that's. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think you know, in Japan you have this strong culture for silence. You can tell in this little haiku, but also if you listen to people, Japanese people, and watch them, you know, having a conversation. You can see that the silent moments between the words or between the sentences are just as important as 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 the words. So I, you know, I found that really interesting. Yeah, I can see that as an old pond, and then the frog jumps in. Sound of what the silence is between the the lines. Then there's an even more impressive example. Uh, you you quote a poem, a poet from the Matsushima group of islands. It's it's two yeah. words. Oh, Matsushima. That's the entire poem. Exactly. Again and again. And I like that because and that's how we humans are. That we kind of can see something, and then kind of remain with that impression. So we kind of you know it's kind of uh, repeated. And I think in the Western tradition we don't appreciate that kind of emotion. So that's why I included that kind of strange poem. And I think you know, uh, I think. You know, it's in terms of silence, we have a little bit to uh, learn from the East, I think. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about your newest book, Walking One Step at a Time. Uh, here's just a, a portion. Placing one foot in front of the other, embarking on the journey of discovery, experiencing joy of exploration, these activities are intrinsic to our nature. Uh, we'll have more with Erling Kaga following this break. NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Contenders Mama Longlegs will open the UPR Summer Concert Series at the Vineyard at Mount Naomi Farms in Hyde Park on Father's Day.
That's Sunday, June 16th. Be sure and purchase your tickets now at upr.org for a catered dinner and great music with Mama Longlegs. See you there. Tariffs have been front page news the past year or so, but one big outdoor retailer has been designing their gear with tariffs in mind for decades now. It's a prime example of how the real designers of apparel and footwear in this country live on Capitol Hill. I'm Kai Rizdal, Columbia Sportswear, and the Harmonized Tariff Schedule. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning at 6.30 this evening on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with explorer, art collector, publisher, and author Erling Kaga. He's the first person to have completed on foot the three poles challenge, the North Pole, the South Pole, and the summit of Mount Everest. The latest book is Walking One Step at a Time. We'll talk a bit about this uh, in the segment of the uh, the program. And Mr. Kaga has joined us from uh, uh, Oslo. Uh, so Erling Kaga, uh, the uh, beginning of this book, you talk about uh, kind of parallel events. Your, your uh, grandmother, who can no longer walk, uh, is dying, and your daughter, 13 months old, is learning to walk. Yeah, that was a great, or at least a very interesting experience to me, because I was very fond of my grandmother, and she had been a very much a walking grandmother. She didn't have a car, so she kept on walking. And eventually she couldn't walk anymore. And, you know, she sat down and lay down and never got up again. And I just kind of felt that was the day she died. Obviously, she lived for a few more months, but, you know, another, another, you know, uh, but, you know, it felt like she was dying. And at the same time, my second daughter, Solvay, she started to learn how to walk. She kind of got up onto two legs and walked across the sitting room out through the door, uh, into the garden, and started to wonder what was hidden behind the, or beyond the horizon. Um, and again, just want to have more and more space around herself. So that was, you know, strange feeling, like, you know, like, uh, like a grandchild and a father to another child, um, to see this. And that's also kind of taught me a lesson about how important it is to be able to walk. You write, placing one foot in front of another, investigating and overcoming our intrinsic to our nature. Journeys of discovery are not something you start doing, but something you gradually stop doing. A lot of us do stop doing this sense of wonder and awe. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's because um, I think we're all born explorers in that sense. When people start me, they ask me, uh, when did you start to explore? I think, you know, we all start to explore when we are, you know, only a few months old, maybe when we're still in the stomachs of our, of our mothers, we kind of are explorers. And I think that spirit never goes away, but obviously it's diminished, but it, it never goes away. Obviously for you, you've kept this or want to keep rediscovering it. You've gone to, you know, South Pole, North Pole, Everest, uh, various explorations. What is it about you and others who are out there exploring. What, what are you looking for? You know, uh, I think, you know, it's very much about curiosity. and It's very much about uh, wonder being the kind of engine of life. And it's very much about experiencing nature, and be connected to nature. I think one of the big mistakes we're doing today is that, you know, we're getting less and less connected to nature, that we kind of feel superior to nature. And, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it's that kind of emotions, you know, and, um, and uh, it's important also, you know, famously, George Mallory said, why, why should you climb Mount Everest? And he said, because it's there. And that's a good answer, because I think, at least to me, it reminds me that it's very few things in life you actually have to do. And, uh, and that's why also need to, I think, you know, you need to make life more difficult than necessary. And it's definitely if you're born in Norway, probably if you're born in Utah too, that, you know, if you, you make these choices throughout the day and throughout your life, and if you always go for the easiest option in life, uh, you'll become an unfree human being, and you will probably also become a quite dull human being. So you need to go for the most difficult choices, you know, more frequent, I think. 
You said uh, we we can tend to feel superior to nature. How do we overcome that? Would I, I, walking would be one when we get out, get out and and be a part of nature. Yeah, I think you know it's it's I think it's it's a big mis- mis- misunderstanding and 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 uh, you know now the whole thing now with for instance with climate change that the world is heating up. Uh, you know, that's also a reminder that, you know, we can be strong, we can be, have fantastic technology, make inventions, but somehow the nature, you know, decides the big questions. And also thinking of our daily lives, if you're going to live a rich life, you need to be connected to nature because, you know, quant kind of nature tells us who we are, where we came from, and, you know, also a little bit, you know, what's going to happen in the future. I love this uh, part of the book. You said, how much further is it? It's one of the questions that I've asked most often. And this is uh, young people yeah. often. Uh, I bet yeah. you your, your kids yeah, probably ask that. I kept on asking my mother. Yeah. Uh, we all skiing or hiking, you know, how far is it left? And, uh, and when I got kids myself, that was the you know, more, most frequently asked question. In my family, <laughs> and the second, second, you know, the second question usually was, "Why do we have to walk uh, when it's faster to drive?" And mm. um, I think that's a really good question, which is hard to, you know, come up with good answers. And that's well, part of why I wrote my book about walking, because I think it's po- important to not equal speed to progress. I think, you know. The whole education system, the government, business is all about us speeding up. But I think, you know, once in a while they need to slow down, they need to walk, and we need to, you know, look after ourselves. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I want to have you uh, talk about uh, going to what's now known as Robinson Crusoe Island. Uh, Alexander Selkirk was the real life yeah. inspiration for Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. The, the island's now been renamed. A good good bit of tourism um, promotion. Uh, tell me about that. Your visit to Robinson Crusoe Island. Yeah, because my father he, he read Robinson Crusoe for me when I was a kid, and he always told me, you know, this is based on a true story. It has happened. And one day, I sailed down the Pacific and I came to the island. And start to, you know, follow in his footsteps and kind of found the cave and also found the lookout, you know, up in the mountains where he was walked up every day um, to look for a ship that could could save him. And I think it took, you know, four years. And I like that it actually walked up every day. And of course, he was disappointed every day until a ship uh, appeared on the horizon. Uh, but I also think, you know, those walks with that hope also kept him alive. Uh, so we're, we're just about at the end of time. I know we have to let you go here soon. Um, what, what, what's the takeaway? What, what do you hope people get from this book, Walking One Step at a Time? I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, many things, but I think, you know, obviously if you walk, uh, you live longer than other people. Uh, you have a lot lower blood pressure. Uh, you will become more creative and your heart beats better. But that's only half the truth. And I want to write about the other half, how actually walking in a very simple way can enrich your life. Wonderful. Um, Erling Kaga is an explorer, art collector, publisher, and author. He's author most recently of Walking One Step at a Time, previous book Silence in the Age of Noise. And he's reached us from Oslo. Erling Kaga, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. No, appreciate it. Uh, and uh, next up, we're going to uh, hear this report. Utah is one of the driest states in North America, according to the National Climate Center. Modern infrastructure, technology, government-appointed officials, and locals who care about our natural resources uh, help farmers uh, grow our food uh, year after year. Uh, UPR's agriculture reporter Bronson Teichert traveled to Central America to report on water challenges Honduran farmers face in a country where help is far from reach. Water, the resource that can keep you and an entire country's economy alive. From your kitchen sink to the Flaming Gorge Dam, it all depends on how you use it. Agriculture is one of the main exports for the country of Honduras. To grow coffee in higher elevations, water isn't a huge problem 
especially during the rainy season. But after the coffee harvest is over, people are trying to grow other crops to sell and provide for their own families. As the summer months pass, so does access to water. In the upper watershed of the southwest region of Honduras, some farmers work together with non-governmental organizations like International Development Enterprises, or IDE, to preserve water. Jose Luis is an agriculture climate smart facilitator for IDE. He says sometimes it's the local people who have to take action when it comes to issues like water use. In every watershed, there is a watershed council where they meet and make decisions. The leaders of the different groups bring the message of what projects they are working on to the people they represent. Maria Gloria Martinez is a farmer in the area of Batoro and president of Caja Rural, which is the name of the local watershed council. At first, I thought she was going to take us on a tour of where she was growing crops. We were on top of a mountain looking down on a thick canopy of trees. We started down a dirt road on a steep hill. When Martinez left the road and took us through a thick forest with varieties of pine trees native to Central America and knee-high grass, the path was barely visible as we walked down further into the ravine. After 15 to 20 minutes of walking, I was starting to wonder why anyone would hike clear down here every day to work on their farm. Then I heard it. The one thing Maria Gloria Martinez was most proud of. Instead of giving me a tour of her farm, Martinez took us to a simple cement water structure that helps regulate the water from a small stream that comes from a local community further up the mountain. With instruction from local technicians, Martinez and her neighbors can now better manage the water for their farms and families. I represent 21 families and am in charge of managing the water for irrigation and for domestic supply. I'm very thankful for the project and all we have been able to achieve. The group Caja Rural is also a finance group. Jose Luis says groups like the 21 families in Batoro pool some of their money together for when they need to make bigger purchases like the cement water structure that benefit all the families. Thanks to the project, they are able to store and provide water to the community after not having easy access to water. It is an example of the project improving the water source of people and also protecting the water source. Protecting the water source takes more than just managing how much gets to go downstream. The resources around the water need to be protected too. IDE helped the group of farmers find a solution that gives back to the land. Caja Rural also acts as a mini bank, according to Martinez. Whenever a farmer needs to take out a loan, yes, they need to pay it back, but the farmer is also required to plant a certain amount of trees. We also compromise with reforestation, not only agricultural practice, but we are also reforesting the woods that have been damaged by pine wood pests. Each family is in charge of planting 10 trees every year. The trees help prevent soil erosion, but Martinez and other farmers are also planting living barriers, which are plants with wide leaves that build a literal fence to stop erosion. Throughout the forest surrounding the stream, you can see where the farmers have built other barriers out of wood to hold the soil in place. Thanks to the project, we have learned that we have to reforest the woods. Now we are realizing that the climate is warmer than before. We have improved living in many ways. Now we are able to grow watermelons, beans, corn, salads, and before it wasn't possible because sometimes it was raining and sometimes it wasn't. Tomorrow, I'll tell you about my travels to the lower watershed of the southwest region of Honduras, where the agriculture commodity groups and city officials are working together while facing hotter and drier climates than their neighbors in the mountains. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Bronson Tykert. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. I can't make chocolate chip cookies. Well, I can make them. People just don't want to eat them afterward. No matter the method, ingredients, or elevation, my cookies always seem to turn out too something. Too crunchy, too gooey, too sweet, too dry. When I bite into a simple yet delightful treat at a potluck dinner, I admit to harboring cookie envy. What do they have that I don't have? Did I miss the lesson on how to make neighbor-crushing cookies during home ec class? 
Rather than requesting a recipe, I fight the urge to set up camp in their kitchens and draft a contract stipulating the instruction and reproduction of two dozen cookies before I leave. All I want is a perfect chocolate chip cookie for purely selfish reasons. One that is moist and dense on the inside while crisp at the edges. A lightly golden cookie that holds its own, balancing a smooth blonde dough with pockets of decadent melted chocolate. So I set out to find the most common cookie pitfalls, or crumbles, with solutions for overcoming them. Crumble one, using the wrong recipe. Solution, find a recipe that fits your cookie ideal. If you prefer a chewy result, look for an ingredient list with more brown sugar or melted butter. Chewy cookies usually have a higher moisture content. If you crave a soft and cakey version, chilling the dough or adding shortening helps cookies retain their shape longer during baking. And for those who prefer a crisp cookie, you know who you are. Amp up the white sugar and keep the cookies small to encourage spreading. Crumble two, overbaked cookies. Solution, bake them less. This sounds easy, but it seems cookies have a 10 second window. Take them out too early, they're goopy, even dangerous. Too late and they become drab and crusty with crumbly bits of chocolate. Experienced cooks recommend pulling cookies from the oven just before you think they're done. When the edges and creases are starting to brown, but the center is still soft. I used to be concerned about this tip until I realized it isn't the undercooked cookies that will get me, it's sampling the dough before they go into the oven. Crumble three, uneven baking. Solution Use a scoop for exact measuring and bake one tray at a time. America's Test Kitchen recommends a number 20 size scoop. For three tablespoons that yield a three and a half inch cookie. Even rotating trays top to bottom won't achieve one tray results. These tips go against my inclinations for freewheeling and speed, but if I've learned anything in the kitchen, it's that you can't rush a good thing. And I know I can get there, the good thing for chocolate chip cookies. Otherwise, you'll see me at your next neighborhood potluck carrying my sleeping bag. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. Statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.